Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, as Halloween approaches and we contemplate the veil between life and death, we look at the afterlife of the microbiome. They literally turn on us after we die and start breaking us down from the inside out. And it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. How apes learn to put their hands in the air. When you drive by a, you know, an elementary school and you see kids playing on the monkey bars, um, they really should be called ape bars. <laughs> apes are the ones that can lift their arms above their heads and swing. Plus, brain waves tell the difference between false memories and real ones. We're locked into a century of Antarctic melting and finding the fingerprint of long COVID. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. When it comes to mitigating the effects of climate change, scientists have made one thing very clear. Time is of the essence. Still, we've regularly dragged our feet, setting climate targets experts say we're now unlikely to meet. Now, new research from the British Antarctic Survey shows that for one outcome of global warming, it may already be too late to correct our path, at least for the next century. Their modeling suggests the rate of melt for the West Antarctic ice sheet will continue to increase rapidly over the next century, regardless of what we do to reduce future emissions. Canadian researcher Dr. Caitlin Naughton is an oceanographer with the British Antarctic Survey and the study's lead author. Dr. Naughton, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Yes, hi. Thank you for having me. Now, you were running computer models for the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. What were you looking at exactly? So we were looking at the way that the ocean melts the bits of the ice sheet around the edges, which are f floating on the ocean surface. These are called ice shelves. And ocean melting of ice shelves is... Uh, the main process currently driving sea level rise from Antarctica. So we wanted uh, to see how that process uh, could change in the future, depending on what we do about climate change. So you're looking at the ice, not the glaciers that are on the land, but the ice that's floating on the ocean in front of the glaciers. It's connected to the glaciers. So when the glacier hits the ocean and keeps going, then we call it an ice shelf. It's a floating glacier tongue. The glacier tongues. Yeah. So, so what's the mechanism that's causing the ice to melt on these shelves? So essentially, uh, the ocean is, is always causing some amount of melting of the ice, but it's an equilibrium. It's offset by the upstream glaciers uh, flowing into the ocean. But if the melting increases, for example, if the ocean temperature increases, uh, this becomes out of equilibrium and the ice shelf gets thinner. And if the ice shelf gets thinner, uh, the glacier tends to speed up because there isn't so much holding it back. Um, and that is what causes sea level rise. Now, your models predict the rate of melt in different scenarios. Uh, what were the range of the scenarios that you looked at? Yeah, so we looked at all scenarios for, from extremely ambitious, so uh, 
limiting global warming to one and a half degrees um, following the most ambitious aims of the Paris Agreement, all the way up to the most pessimistic, where fossil fuel use expands really dramatically over the century. And experts think that both ends of the spectrum are probably not super realistic, but, but if you cover everything in between, you know you've covered all the plausible outcomes. So what were the best and worst case scenarios? Even the best case scenario was pretty bad. In all of the scenarios, we saw an increase in the rate of ocean warming and ice shelf melting by about a factor of three. Um, The worst case scenario was worse than the rest by about 40%. But all of the sort of low and mid-range scenarios, they were actually um, indistinguishable in terms of their trend over the 21st century. So, So that's suggest that reducing fossil fuels can help to prevent the very worst case scenario, which we're already doing, actually. But beyond that, mitigation doesn't seem to have a huge impact. Wow. So even if we meet the Paris Agreement targets, it won't won't matter? This century, but we think the differences in between scenarios are likely to grow after 2100. Um, And it's important to remember 2100 is still quite early days. for the ice sheet. Ice sheets change on very slow timescales. And so uh, most of your listeners probably won't still be around in 2100, but it's quite early dates for the ice sheet. So why can't uh, our reduction in emissions stop this process? Why does it seem to be locked in, at least in the short term? Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. The first is that even one and a half degrees is a big change in the climate from pre-industrial. I believe it's warmer than we've seen in all of human evolution. There's also a bit of a lag in the system. The climate isn't just a global temperature. It's also got changes in the ocean, changes in all the other systems. And so the, the ocean takes a little while to catch up to what the atmosphere is doing. Um, And the final reason is uh, natural climate variability. So the timing of events like El Nino, which we cannot predict or control, have a big impact on this part of the world. And that introduces an uncertainty. It can change the trends by a factor of two. And that that sort of blurs the lines between the scenarios. So what are the implications of this research? Uh, what what effect would uh, the melting of the ice shelf have, say, on sea level rise? Yes. So it's hard to see how you can warm the ocean this m- much and have the ice sheet just be fine with it. Um, we're already seeing that um, ice shelves in this region are thinning uh Glaciers are speeding up and sea level rise from West Antarctica is accelerating over the recent decades. Um, We can't quantify how much sea level rise would result from our findings, um, but the direction of travel is not good. Is there anything that coastal cities can do to prepare for sea level rise? Yeah, so you have two choices uh, with sea level rise. The first is you try to defend against it. So you build up, uh, say, walls and dams and other coastal defenses. You can uh, you can p- p- pump sea water 
away from the land. Um, these are very, very costly, very complex. And depending on how much money you have to spend on it, which in some developing countries could be zero, there does come a point at which you have to abandon the city to relocate elsewhere. And so I think one of the most concerning implications of sea level rise is its potential to cause a refugee crisis. So if we can't change the outcome of the loss of ice shells, at least in the immediate future, what can we do? So there are two things. The first is to accept that some amount of sea level rise is kind of affordable and we need to focus our efforts on adaptation in the short term. And the other thing we need to do is to shift our focus to the longer term, because if we can stabilize the global temperature or ideally even bring it down, which requires net negative carbon emissions, um, if we can do that over the 22nd century and beyond, we can hopefully reduce our longer-term commitment to sea level rise. Oh, so there is a reason for hope here. Absolutely. I I think it's also important to remember that uh, West Antarctica is just one cause of sea level rise. And also sea level rise is only one impact of climate change. So we still have the, the ability to prevent for example, worsening heat waves and droughts and extreme rainfall. Now, the climate isn't an all or nothing thing. There's a spectrum of increasingly bad impacts. And so the, the sooner we can stop it in its tracks, the better. Dr. Naughton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Dr. Caitlin Naughton is an oceanographer with the British Antarctic Survey. <laughs> It's the time of year when ghosts, goblins, and ghouls emerge from the underworld to celebrate all that's scary. All Hallows' Eve is reputed to be when the veil between the land of the living and the land of the dead is at its thinnest. Which is why, on October 31st, we pay homage to the dead with bats, spiders, gravestones, skeletons, tricks, and treats. <laughs> well, whether there is a veil for spirits to pass through isn't a question science can answer, but what it can tell us is what happens to our bodies after we die. And not just us, but also the trillions of bacteria living inside of us. Canadian researcher Dr. Jennifer DeBrun is a professor of environmental microbiology at the University of Tennessee who's been investigating this. Dr. DeBrun, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you so much for having me. What mystery were you hoping to solve when you started looking into what happens to us and our microbes after we die? Well, we know that dead things are a part of all ecosystems, right? Everything eventually that is living has to die. Um, and I've always been sort of fascinated by the recycling of dead things back into the environment. And we know that microbes play a really key role in that. And one of the things that really fascinates me about animal decomposition and human decomposition is that we bring our own microbial decomposers to the game, essentially. Uh, we are filled with trillions of microbial cells, mostly in our guts. And we know that these microbes are kind of the first step in decomposition after we die. And so I was just curious what happened to them 
once our bodies break down and they actually get out into the real world, so to speak. <laughs> well, let's let's start with the first stage here. What happens right after we die, but before we're put in the ground? So after we die, our cells stop getting oxygen, right? Because our blood isn't circulating anymore. So cells start to break down. And so our gut microbes, and these are the microbes that we know are, play such an important role in our health while we're alive, they start using these broken down cells as a food source. Because one of the other things that's going on is we no longer have an immune system that's intact that can keep these gut microbes in check. So they literally turn on us after we die and start breaking us down from the inside out. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So from being our friends to using us as a source of food. Exactly. Okay. Now, once uh, we do go into the ground, there are microbes in the soil as well. So how welcoming did you anticipate those in the soil to be uh, to the ones that are in our bodies? If you think about what our gut microbes are adapted to, it's actually a pretty comfortable lifestyle, if you will. Our guts are about 37 degrees Celsius. There's no oxygen. These microbes get a steady supply of food from our digestive system. And so compared to that, the, the soil or the environment is actually a really harsh place to live. We know we get these big swings in temperature, uh, in moisture, in nutrient availability. And so my thinking was that our gut microbes really wouldn't do well out there once they hit those harsh environmental conditions. And even if they could survive those conditions... The microbes that are already out there in the soil are well adapted to those swings. They know how to handle it. And so they would probably outcompete our microbes when it came to any sort of, of real processes in the soil. So how did you go about studying what happens when these two different microbes meet? Well, we actually got our first hint that they might be lasting longer than we think in the environment from a study we did early on. This was a few years ago now, one of our very first studies looking at human decomposition. And what we did was we had collected soils below a decomposing human over several months. And what we were specifically looking for was a species of bacterium called Bacteroides that it was specific to human gut communities. We were really surprised to find that even months after all of our soft tissues have decomposed, everything's kind of disintegrated, we were still able to count DNA signatures of this organism in soil. So that was our first hint that maybe our gut microbes are persisting a lot longer than we think out in the environment. But of course, this what? was just based on DNA markers. So it doesn't tell us if the cells are living or if they're actually doing anything or if there's any importance to this observation at all. But that was our first hint that something might be going on. Okay, so it looks like they, they're living, or, or at least they're surviving for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so how did you take it a step further and find out what would happen when they meet the microbes that are in the soil? We decided to take it back to the lab and use a manipulation experiment where we could simulate these decomposition environments. So what we did is we, we took some soil back to the lab and set up a number of, of jars with soils in it. <laughs> 
Then we took several beaver carcasses. We allowed them to decompose on these big plastic trays. We let all the decomposition fluids kind of juice out and produce, and it was exactly as disgusting as you are picturing it right now. We collected those decomposition fluids so that we could mix decomposition fluids with its microbes in with soil. Well, how similar is the microbiome of a beaver compared to our gut? Broadly, our gut communities are fairly similar. We have a lot of the same anaerobic types of bacteria, at least at at sort of a phylum level. Um, Specific species will be different between us, especially because we have a different diet than beavers, but they're broadly similar. Okay. So what did you find when you brought the two microbiomes together? Well, in order to really tease apart what the carcass microbes and the soil microbes were doing is we kind of had to come up with a way to separate them. So in one treatment, we just added the decomposition fluid to soil. So we had both carcass and soil communities mixed together. In another treatment, what we did was we removed the soil communities by sterilizing the soil before we started. So in that treatment, we should only have carcass microbes. And then in a third treatment, we removed the carcass microbes by filter sterilizing the decomposition fluid. In theory, this should allow all of the uh, nutrients and the decomposition products still there, but not the carcass microbes. Okay. So then we could let these simulated decomposition environments kind of incubate or fester, if you will, for for 40 (laughs) days. And we measured a wide variety of biological and chemical parameters to try and understand what's going on. And what did you find? So what we found is in our mixed communities, so where we had both the carcass and the soil microbial communities together, we actually had elevated respiration or carbon dioxide production, telling us that there's more activity in the soil where we have both those communities. Oh, so are these microbes working together? Well, we think so. We also looked very specifically at nitrogen cycling. And one of the things we specifically saw was that the carcass microbes were really good at converting organic forms of nitrogen. So that's the proteins, say, in our muscle tissues, converting that down into inorganic form in the form of ammonium. And then our soil microbial communities were really good at taking that ammonium and converting it to nitrate through a process called nitrification, which is an important way that soil microbes make nitrogen available for plants and other microbes to use. So we have the seeds of our own recycling within us. Exactly. Dr. DeBrun, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Dr. Jennifer DeBrun is a professor of environmental microbiology at the University of Tennessee. Reach up for something on a high shelf, or pick up a baseball and throw it hard. The fact that we can do this has to do with the specific anatomy of our shoulder joints. And a new study suggests that the changes that gave us this ability were an important branching off point in the evolution of our primate ancestors, because it helped us descend from the trees. Dartmouth College researcher Mary Joy analyzed videos of chimpanzees and small monkeys called mangabees climbing up and down trees. And while they climbed up in similar fashion, Climbing down looked different for monkeys and chimps. The chimpanzees just had 
so much more of a range of motion when they were climbing downward. They climbed downward with this sort of erratic, it was almost like a controlled fall type of motion, uh, where they had full extension of their elbows and shoulders. And I remember thinking that I recognized that type of erratic motion because it's a similar motion to when you're running down a really steep slope, you, you need full range of motion. It's kind of controlled fall sort of similarly. Um, and so I, I thought about it in the same way and wondered, well, maybe if these chimpanzees are climbing downward in this like very erratic fall type of motion, maybe it's because of a similar reason. Jeremy De Silva, a professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, is a co-author on this new study. Dr. De Silva, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you so much for having me. So what stuck out to you about how different primates climb trees? So the monkeys come down the tree much the same way they went up. Um, it's almost like when you go up a ladder and then you come back down the ladder, uh, you really don't change your uh, body mechanics very much at all. Uh, and monkeys uh, essentially do the same thing. Um, apes, though, very, very different mechanics when they're coming back down out of the tree. They lift their arms, they reach back, they extend much more with their shoulders, and then their elbows completely extend as they're reaching for branches to control their fall out of a tree. The force of gravity uh, is, 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 you know, is going to be, is a constant, right? But larger animals are going to have a greater force on them uh, as a result of uh, the acceleration due to gravity. And so larger animals falling out of a tree are at a greater risk. And so what we think has happened is over the course of ape evolution, apes have evolved these much more mobile shoulders and elbows uh, to mitigate some of the risks uh, of getting out of a tree. So they're breaking their falls with their arms? That's exactly what they're doing. Wow. Now, I, so what, what's the difference anatomically? Because I'm just feeling my own shoulder right now as I reach up, and I, I can feel sort of a ball joint in there. So how is the, the apes and our shoulders different from the monkeys? So our shoulders and ape shoulders uh, are, are quite round. Uh, they're very, very mobile and flexible. Uh, and particularly the scapular, the shoulder blade, the little socket there that the head of the humerus or your upper arm fits into is shaped in a manner that allows you to fully rotate your arm above your head and hold your arms above your head. Whereas in a monkey's shoulder joint, um, the top of the shoulder kind of tapers to a point. It's, it's shaped more like a pear and it prevents them or limits their uh, range of motion. And so they can't lift their arms above their heads quite as much, um, which is kind of fun when you, when you drive by a, you know, an elementary school and you see kids playing on the monkey bars. Um, they really should be called ape bars. <laughs> Apes are the ones that can lift their arms above their heads and swing. Uh, and then the other big difference is at the elbow. If you, if you flex your arm and flex your elbow, uh, you'll feel at the very end there's a bump of bone and it's called the olecranon process. In apes and in humans, even though we can feel this bump, it's actually quite small compared to that chunk of bone on a monkey. And that chunk of bone on a monkey is very large for the insertion of a muscle, their triceps muscle, which is very powerful in a monkey. Uh, but the trade-off is that because that chunk of bone is so large, um, it gets in the way of fully extending at the elbow. So they can't do it. And that limits their reach, that limits their ability to, to extend fully and grab onto a branch, which again is okay for them. Monkeys do just fine. 
but for a larger animal, uh, it could be the difference between life and death as they're falling out of a tree. Now, are there any trade-offs to having that? I mean, if, if flexible joints are so great, why don't all primates have them? Increasing the mobility of your shoulder increases the likelihood of dislocation. So the shoulder joint is one of the most dislocated by humans. And so having such mobility comes at the expense of stability. And we see that trade-off happening a lot in the animal world. Well, I count myself in that. I've had my shoulder dislocate several times, and it's not pleasant at all. I'm sorry, Bob. How long then uh, do you think this ability to reach up over our heads and swing has been around in humans? So we can look at uh, apes and, and monkeys. We can look at their genetic material. And the differences allow us to estimate when they last shared a common ancestor. And the common ancestor lived about 25 to 30 million years ago. And then we can look at the fossil record to see the, the anatomical uh, uh, changes that happened in these different lineages. And what we've learned is that the ape-like shoulder, the flexible mobile shoulder, evolved uh, by 20 million years ago. We have fossils in Uganda of an ape known as Morotopithecus that has a shoulder that's a lot like a modern ape shoulder. So it already would have been able to lift its arm over its head and navigate, we think, out of the trees uh, as it was uh, you know, done climbing its tree to get fruit or to get away from predators. Okay, so I can see how that would uh, assist in getting out of trees, but why would we retain this ability as humans to this day uh, despite, you know, we're not exactly living in trees anymore. That's right. Now, our earliest hominin ancestors that lived three, four, five, six million years ago, the very famous Lucy skeleton, for instance, uh, she's what's called an Australopithecus, and she lived about 3.2 million years ago. And we have remains of her shoulder and her elbow as well. And she had a very flexible shoulder and could extend at the elbow. And we think at night, she probably went up into trees to uh, get away from predators. And she likely went up into trees to get fruit for herself. And so there was a history in our, uh, uh, our distant past, our uh, uh, past as, as hominins, where we're still upright walking uh, ancestors of ours, but, but they were also living this dual world of, of utilizing the trees when having this anatomy would have been beneficial to their survival. But once we get to members of our own genus, genus Homo, uh, we have evidence that they invented fire, they were living more on the ground, maybe not climbing as frequently, and yet they retained and actually tweaked and modified this shoulder anatomy in a way that allowed them to throw with great uh, accuracy and with speed. And so we think that this is a great example of the tinkering effects of evolution. Uh, the evolution works with uh, pre-existing forms and tweaks and tinkers. And so the shoulder and the elbow that was once adaptive for life in the trees, and we think life in terms of getting out of the trees with this particular study, uh, was then beneficial for throwing, throwing rocks, throwing spears, throwing projectiles that would have been uh, useful to defend ourselves uh, and also maybe even uh, as a way to hunt. Just one last thing. What goes through your mind when you see a major league baseball player throw a 90 mile an hour pitch? <laughs> Uh, that I'm glad I'm not in the batter's box, first off, but that our sports, they are taking advantage of this ancient echo 
of our distant past that evolved for entirely different reasons, but that is still with us today, thanks to the survival of our ape ancestors. Dr. De Silva, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Jeremy De Silva is a professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the show, why it's so critical that we now have the biological fingerprint of long COVID. So being able to have a tool to diagnose long COVID will go a long way in helping patients and doctors. Memory can be a funny thing. Maybe you remember a recent Friday night with utmost precision. You can smell the creamy Alfredo sauce you had on your pasta. You can recall the taste of the white wine you had with it. Maybe you can call to mind what song was playing. And you were wearing your new leather jacket. Uh, but wait, was that before you bought it? And your best friend was there, or was that your sister? Sometimes our memories fail us on these details, maybe because we've been in similar situations before. But these contextual mix-ups could lead to false memories. Now, new research from the University of Pennsylvania shows what's happening in the brain when it remembers a false memory versus a true one. Dr. Noah Hertz is the lead author of the study. She's now an assistant professor of neurology at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Dr. Hertz, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, thank you for inviting me. First of all, what exactly is a false memory? A false memory um, is a phenomenon whereby individuals tend to remember an event that never actually happened or remember details of an event that they think are associated with a specific context, but in fact, these details were actually experienced in a completely different context. So how did you go about monitoring memory recall in your study? So, yeah, we were interested in understanding how the brain enables us to do this kind of memory retrieval and specifically what is happening when we are doing these types of memory errors. So we focused our investigation on a brain region called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a deep brain region that is crucially involved in this type of memory retrieval. It sort of glues together different aspects of an event uh, to enable us to later on retrieve the information in one cohesive memory. So for example, I can ask you, um, you know, to recall uh, your last visit to the supermarket, for example, and tell me the groceries you bought there. Uh, and there's a chance that you'll remember some of the items correctly, but there's also a chance that you'll tell me an item that was actually purchased on a completely different occasion. The hippocampus is what's making this event a unique event. It enables you to remember you know, the specific sounds, the specific sites. So all of these different contextual factors that make each episode a unique episode. So is, is the hippocampus gluing in the wrong piece of a false memory? 
That was what we were interested in. The idea we had was that if, in fact, the hippocampus stores the association between all of these different factors, then by recording the activity of the hippocampus, we should be able to differentiate between correct and false memories. And in order to test this, we leveraged a unique opportunity provided by epilepsy patients undergoing seizure monitoring at the hospital. Um, These patients... um, are hospitalized with brain electrodes, but while they are in the hospital, we uh, approach them and ask them to take part in a simple memory task. So how did you do the experiment to see whether or not they're recalling real memories or false ones? So the experiment was fairly simple. We show patients a list of items, and following a short distraction, we ask them to remember as many items as they can. And we focus on these fleeting moments leading up to either correct or false recall of items. So for example, you can think about a patient seeing the words lily, rose, and daffodils. And they're actually seeing 12 words in each list. And then following a short distraction, um, they might say the word sunflowers. So this is an example of a false recall, uh, even though it's related to the items that they actually saw, because they saw items that are all related to the flowers category, but um, they were still remembering an incorrect memory, um, or in other words, a false memory. So what did you see happening in the brain, in the hippocampus, when people were recalling true memories or false ones? So the first thing we found was that neural oscillations in the hippocampus form this characteristic pattern that differentiate correct from false memories. Um, Neural oscillations are sometimes referred to as brain waves. It's the rhythmic activity of uh, electrical signals in the brain that are generated by a group of neurons that are working together, or a, a group of brain cells. And these neural oscillations are known for a very long time to play a crucial role in many different cognitive processes, including memory. So the fact that we're finding this different spectral or neural oscillatory pattern for correct and for false memories indicate that the hippocampus indeed stores the uh, association between the details that we learn with the context in which we learn them. What do those different brain waves mean in terms of memory recall? So this actually brings me to the second finding. Uh, We can actually differentiate also between types of false recalls. Um, So the idea is that we're not thinking about the hippocampus as sort of a built-in lie detector, right, that just differentiates all correct from all false memories. Rather, it's forming these associations between everything that we learn. Now, if that's indeed the case, then false memories that uh, that were learned in a more similar context to the correct context should also show a more similar hippocampal activity. We tested this by differentiating between false recalls that share either high or low contextual similarity. And what we found was that these low frequency oscillations tend to decrease when the false memory share a high resemblance to the correct memory. So a false memory where I had red wine when I thought I had white will be harder to detect than if it were something entirely different or or an entirely different restaurant. Exactly. So if you can see this difference in brain activity, 
are you able to essentially verify someone's memories? Yeah, that's, I guess, the million-dollar question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, not entirely what we are able to do. Uh, First of all, you you have to remember that uh, we don't have the precision, you know, to really tell for each and every trial whether it's going to be a false or a correct memory. So it's really more of a statistical way of doing that rather than something that is 100% sure, you know, about each and every trial. The second thing is that it really depends on the type of the false memory. So what are the implications here for this research? You know, memories obviously play an integral part of our life. So understanding how the brain operates when it comes to memory retrieval is important because it can also help us understand, you know, what's happening when we are having problems remembering things or when we are making errors. Could it also be used the other way to uh, help eliminate memories we don't want to recall? I'm thinking of PTSD here. Exactly. People with post-traumatic stress disorder tend to have memories of their traumatic incident, uh, sometimes for many, many years after the trauma has ceased. And these traumatic memories are very distressing. They disturb their uh, daily function. So um, going forward, what I'm doing is thinking about using actually similar methods to the methods we were using in this paper and thinking about instead of decoding false memories, trying to decode traumatic memories. So, you know, although this paper doesn't have any immediate clinical implications, it does lead to some exciting thoughts about, you know, future studies that we can do. Dr. Hertz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Noah Hertz is an assistant professor of neurology at Thomas Jefferson University. By now, many of us have had a first-hand experience with COVID-19. But for many Canadians, like 19-year-old Reese Opdam from the Niagara region of Ontario, COVID just won't let go. Back in 2022, she was living the dream, going to a university in South Carolina where she was studying political science and competing for the university's high-powered rowing team. It just meant the world to me. Like, I had felt that I achieved this on my own. I had worked so hard, and I was just so excited and proud of myself. But that fall, she got COVID. She was quite ill, sleeping all day and running a high fever. And after about a week, she started feeling better, at least for a few days, but her recovery stalled. Long COVID set in. I would walk to the bus stop to get on the bus to class or whatever, and I was so out of breath. And also, I was so dizzy where oftentimes I would literally almost fall over and I also had really insane chest pain, so it was obviously scary because, you know, it's like the heart attack symptoms, and, and I was really scared, and I realized, like, maybe there's something wrong. As time went on, the persistent symptoms only got worse. I started getting really terrible brain fog. My vision would be blurry at random times. I would be super sensitive to light, and then I'd have terrible headaches, and actually... From that point till about January of 2023, 
I would run a fever every single day, and that was terrible. After about five months, as her symptoms came and went, she hit her low point. I was in a very awful space because I had kind of learned that I wouldn't be going back to rowing. And it was just crazy. Like, my whole life I had never had a health problem. And that time frame, all I was reminded of was I'm bedbound. I can't row. I can't work out. I can't go with my mom to the grocery store. And it was a really scary time. Today, she's marginally improved. After an extended recovery at home, she's now back at university, but still, the long COVID just won't go away. Off and on, I get issues where I struggle to swallow. And one thing that's been really affecting me recently is my fingernails actually have been falling off. And before I talked with you today, I was in bed all day. Mentally, I think I'm doing better but physically, there hasn't been a crazy improvement. According to Stats Canada, about 15% of Canadians who got infected with the coronavirus have suffered from long COVID. It's distressing and frustrating for patients, especially because those around them, family, friends, teachers, and employers, don't always understand why they aren't getting better. Canada's chief science advisor, Dr. Mona Niemer, said last spring... The situation is so concerning that it has the potential of becoming a mass disabling event. And one of the problems is we still don't know much about long COVID. They've come to be known as post-COVID-19 condition or PCC, also known as long COVID. We don't fully understand what causes certain individuals to develop PCC or what leads to the different disease manifestations. We don't know why women are twice as likely as men to contract it. We don't know why it can accelerate the onset of other chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease. But it is evident that PCC is a serious condition that can have at times irreversible health consequences. Well, a recent study in the journal Nature is starting to provide some answers. Scientists in the U.S. have discovered reliable biological signatures of long COVID. And apart from helping to confirm sufferers' symptoms, these signatures could also help us better understand the condition. Dr. Akiko Iwasaki has become a leading expert on the causes of long COVID. She's professor of immunobiology at Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you very much for having me. How important is it to have a clear way to identify patients with long COVID? Well, it's very important for the patients and the doctors to have a way of identifying long COVID because currently the clinical definition of long COVID is not uniform. Um, because there are so many symptoms associated with long COVID, there are over 200 different ones that have been reported. And of course, many of these symptoms overlap with other diseases. So being able to have a tool to diagnose long COVID it, it will go a long way in helping patients and doctors. Well, can you take me through how you identified these biological signatures of long COVID? Yes, so we collaborated with a long COVID clinic at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. 
to identify biological signatures that can distinguish people with or, or without long COVID. And the way in which we did this is we recruited patients with long COVID along with controls.、Uh, these are the people who have recovered completely after getting COVID or people who have never gotten COVID. And we compared biological signatures between these three groups of people. And there we were able to identify specific biological factors that are distinct between long COVID patients and those who don't have it. Well, what were some of the telltale signs that you found in the long COVID patients? So, one of the key findings of this study is that we found lower levels of circulating cortisol in people with long COVID. And cortisol is a very important hormone that regulates many physiological functions in our body. And when you have lower levels of cortisol, that could lead to things like、uh, fatigue. And potentially、uh, nausea and other symptoms that people are reporting. Now, I think of cortisol as a stress hormone. <laughs> We worry about it being、yeah. too high. You're saying that they had lower levels of it. Exactly. So that's a little bit of a misnomer. People call cortisol stress hormone. And it is true that during stressful response, you do elevate the cortisol level in order to you know, focus your、uh, physiological response against the stress. However, it's also a critical hormone that regulates daily functions of our body. And so we really need this diurnal levels of cortisol, which peaks in the morning and slowly wanes over the day,、uh, in order to regulate various aspects of metabolism,、um, as well as wakefulness and many other conditions that、uh, rely on this hormone. So, what other biological signatures did you find? So, the other findings of this study is that we find、uh, people with long COVID who have a reactivation of latent herpes viruses, such as Epstein Barr virus,、uh, which is、um, also known as、uh, mononucleosis or monodisease virus. And what we found is that even though 90 to 95% of adults are latently infected with this virus, Uh, we understand from this study that people with long COVID have reactivated this latent version of the virus, and so that these viruses like EBV become infectious again. And that's、uh, predominantly found with, in people with long COVID and not those who recovered fully from COVID. Wow. So these other viruses are in the body, sort of in the background, not doing anything. COVID shows up and they're activated again. Exactly. How surprised were you that that would happen? Well, this could mean a couple of different things. One is that the, the reason that these viruses are in latent form or dormant、uh, in our body is because our immune system is continuously checking on them and suppressing their reactivation. So the fact that the patients with long COVID have reactivation to me suggests that their immune response may be、uh, dysfunctional. How far do these signatures go in explaining what's behind long COVID? Yeah, these signatures are first glimpse into the disease. For instance, people who reactivate EBV may be different from people who have inflammatory signatures or who have you know, low levels of cortisol. And so we need to be able to subset the patients appropriately based on what's driving the disease. It's important to note that long COVID is not one disease. It's likely multiple diseases under one umbrella. 
And so what that means is that we have to find biomarkers for each of these, what we call endotypes of long COVID. Uh, that allows us to kind of subset the patients appropriately so that we can not only diagnose them, but provide appropriate therapy. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the other root causes of it? Uh, so right now we're looking at four possible root causes for long COVID. One is the persistent virus infection with the COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2. The second one being this EBV reactivation. A third one being autoimmunity. So many viruses can induce autoreactive T cells and B cells, and that may be going on in a subset of patients. And fourth one is sort of tissue damage that's not properly repaired. And that we are also finding evidence for. So these four root causes are important to dissect because the treatment that we would give these patients would be dramatically different based on the causes of these diseases. Take me through how it would work to uh, create autoimmune responses. Autoimmune responses are often triggered by stresses uh, such as a viral infection. There is responses against the virus, but it's also immune responses against self. Proteins or, or other antigens that are expressed by our own cells become the target of attack by the immune system. And so that's been known to happen with viruses like EBV. And it's possible that similar things are happening with COVID, that during the acute phase of COVID, when there's a lot of activation of the immune system, uh, that also includes autoreactive cells. And once you trigger these autoreactive T and B cells, it's very difficult to shut them down. And that's why the autoimmune diseases are chronic. You mentioned that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can persist in long COVID patients. How so? So that's a very mysterious thing that happens after COVID, that now there are over 100 papers demonstrating the presence of the virus, whether it be antigen or the RNA or combination, uh, found in various different tissues of the body, including the intestinal tract. So there's much evidence now saying that months or years after the infection, we can still find persistent virus antigen and RNA and potentially uh, replication competent virus in uh, various parts of the body. And so what that does is that it will uh, ex be expected to trigger immune responses in a chronic fashion. And that could basically trigger both innate and adaptive immunity that could be leading to long COVID. And so we have actually started a clinical trial giving long COVID patients Paxlovid, which is an antiviral drug, to see whether Paxlovid treatment uh, improved the symptom of long COVID. And in those patients, uh, what are the changes in the biomarkers so that we can identify future patients that may also benefit from this treatment? So how can this information that you're getting about the root causes and the biological signatures in the blood help develop treatment for long COVID other than the antivirals that you mentioned? Yes. Um, so other causes of long COVID, such as EBV and autoimmunity, may also be targeted by different um, medicines and drugs. So uh, we can also think about treating autoimmunity with existing medicines that autoimmune patients are already getting that would suppress or deplete certain types of immune cells or factors. 
Um, these could be monoclonal antibodies or uh, medicines that block uh, cytokine signaling pathways. So there's a lot of things that we already know from autoimmune disease literature that we can apply to treat patients with long COVID. So how close are we to now having an actual test that doctors can use to diagnose long COVID patients? So our study is the first step into defining biomarkers uh, that can be used for diagnosis. But obviously, it has to be validated. And also, as I mentioned, because there are multiple endotypes of long COVID, we may need to identify biomarkers for each of these. Um, But I hope that we are getting closer uh, now that we understand a bit about these differences that we see. So there's still a long road ahead. I think so. What kind of impact are you hoping your findings will have on people's attitudes about COVID? Many people still dismiss the existence of long COVID or the fact that long COVID is driven by biological causes. So some people might think that it's uh, all in your head or, you know, you're imagining things. And those things can be put to rest because we did find that uh, immunological parameters changes alone are able to distinguish people with long COVID with 94% accuracy which means we don't have to rely on other potential causes of long COVID and that the biological factors alone are able to distinguish these diseases. How eye-opening has the pandemic been, I mean, in terms of our understanding of the long-lasting damage that viruses can leave behind? So long COVID is the newest addition to a line of other viruses, bacteria, and parasites that lead to very similar outcomes, chronic diseases after infection. And so we are now collectively studying these post-acute infection syndromes together to be able to get a better sense of what's going on in this post-acute phase of infectious disease, and which includes things like MECFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, that people have been suffering for decades without any diagnosis or treatment. So I'm hoping that this kind of concerted effort to identify long COVID disease mechanism will go a long way in identifying uh, mechanisms of disease for other types of post-viral syndromes. Dr. Iwasaki, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Bob. Dr. Akiko Iwasaki is a professor of immunobiology at Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Leslie Amundsen, Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.